Hello, welcome to New Books in Geography. I'm your host, Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University. And I'm very pleased to have my friend and colleague Tom Perot on the podcast today. Tom is also a Professor of Geography at Syracuse, and he's an expert on environment and development, environmental politics and governance, as well as indigenous and campesino social movements in South America. Tom is also a leading scholar in the field of political ecology, one of the largest and most vibrant fields in the discipline of geography. Tom is also co-editor with James McCarthy and Gavin Bridge of the just-published Routledge Handbook of Political Ecology. Calling this volume a handbook, however, is to undersell it somewhat. The book is a 600-plus page compendium of key themes in political ecology written by over 50 of the leading scholars in the field. We will only cover a little bit of what's in the handbook, but instead, Tom and I will have a conversation about the field of political ecology itself, where it's been, where it is now, and where it might be headed in the future. So, Tom, welcome to New Books in Geography. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Before we dive into talking about political ecology, could you tell the listeners a little bit about your research and how you got interested in political ecology? Sure. Um, So my research is focused um, geographically, regionally, it's focused in um, the Andes in South America. Um, I did my dissertation work in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And for the last 12 years now, I've been focused um, primarily in the Bolivian Andes. Right now, I'm working kind of focused in work on the um, Bolivian Altiplano. the, as you said in your lead-in, the, um, the topics that I focus on are um, sort of indigenous and campesino social movements, environmental governance, resource access, resource management. So those sorts of things. Um, that's the, you know my the, been my focus right now. I'm working on. Um, I've been focused for a while on extractive industries and also on water. And so these kind of basic resources and resource politics. um, And for the last few years, I've been focused on the intersection of mining and water, um, because I think that that's an interesting window into these um, sorts of struggles over livelihood, um, rural livelihood. So um, water is absolutely essential for mining. Um, It's one of the largest uses of of um, water mining. The mining industry is one of the largest uses of water in the Andean region and anywhere that mining occurs, but it's also absolutely essential for agriculture, of course. And so um, there's some fundamental contradictions then around water use and access and quantity and quality and things like that. So that's what I've been um, doing my work on. Um, But prior to that, I've done some work on um, the uh, kind of politics, nationalist politics around natural gas extraction and export in Bolivia, um, around rural water governance um, in Bolivia. I've also done work on indigenous land rights um, and rural development projects in the Ecuadorian Amazon. Um, So that's been sort of the, the... focus of my work. Um, and how I got into it is it was, I mean, I, I guess in some ways I became interested in political ecology before I knew that such a field even existed because, um, I've always been interested in environment. Um, I've been a lifelong environmentalist. I grew up in Colorado and as, you know, as a fellow Westerner, you know very well, um, that the natural environment plays a, 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 an important role in the lives of a lot of people growing up in that landscape. And so, um, you know, I spent my, you know, my childhood 
camping and hiking and, um, you know, biking and things like that in, in Colorado and was always interested in the outdoors and majored in ecology and, bi- you know, biological ecology um, as an undergraduate at the University of Colorado. Um, but then I also, about that, um, during my college years, I also got very interested in sort of international studies and particularly in um, questions around resource use, conservation, um, and kind of small-scale agriculture. And so when I went back to graduate school, um, I looked for a way to bring um, my interest in the environment and my interest in um, people and particularly in sort of the global south um, uh, together. And so um, I first found a field called cultural ecology and then, um, but I was really interested also more in, in sort of normative questions around um, justice and environmental politics and environmental justice. And um, so that led into uh, political ecology. So I kind of feel like that was having these questions sort of forming before I'd ever heard the term political ecology. And then once I found out what that was, um, and sort of my first exposure to that really as a field was in 1996, I think, with the publication of the first edition of Liberation Ecologies. And when I read that, I it sort of clicked for me. And I thought, oh, okay, this is what I do. <laughs> So I was able to put it, you know, at that point, I was sort of able to put a name to what I was already doing and thinking about um, pretty well. So well, let's, let's talk about some of those key works. Uh, liberation Ecology is maybe not one of the, the earliest work, but certainly within the first decade or so. And you talked about some of the themes that you uh, continue to look at in your research, issues around resource governance, environmental conflicts and politics. Uh and issues particularly of rural livelihoods in the global south. And those all seem to be kind of key themes that many political ecologists, but as we're going to see, not all study. So maybe you could tell me and the listeners a little bit about the origins of political ecology and who were some of the key early figures and what sort of things did they study? Yeah, sure. Um, so in in the Anglophone tradition, and this is something that we can talk about a little bit later, because there are different traditions, you know, um, in as there are in a lot of fields um, that oftentimes track um, linguistically, right? Less than national traditions or even necessarily regional traditions. There's an Anglophone tradition, just as there is a Francophone or um, German tradition, things like that. So, um, in the Anglophone tradition, a lot of it stems from um, the, you know, as a field of political ecology, um, and the roots go deeper, but it sort of started to congeal as a field in the 1980s and sort of emerging out of influenced by and, and largely as a critique of the fields of cultural ecology, which I just mentioned, and also the sort of human ecology hazards tradition. So, um, let me explain, talk about those a little bit. So the cultural yeah. <laughs> Cultural ecology is um, is a field that looks at um, at in um, sort of the relationship between people and their natural environment, largely focused on sort of rural and oftentimes global south population. So the classic studies in cultural ecology had to do with tribal peoples, indigenous peoples, 
um, small scale peasant farmers in the global south. And again, there are, you know, there were a lot of this was focused in the Andean region, a lot of it in Mexico. Um, there was a whole tradition in um, Papua New Guinea. Um, much of this comes out of anthropology, um, the, the work of Julian Stewart in, um, in anthropology, um, and then um, influenced also by people like Carl Sauer in geography. Now, Carl Sauer wouldn't have called himself a cultural ecologist, but a lot of the people who did consider themselves cultural ecology, a cult, cultural ecologist, traced their lineage directly back to um, to Carl Sauer and his influence on sort of cultural landscape and resource use and this kind of historical look at the ways in which people interact with their landscapes and with their natural environment. Um, and so cultural ecology really studied in drawing on sort of systems ecology, influenced quite a lot by systems ecology, together with um, that form of kind of cultural geography influenced by Julian Stewart and, and, um, and Carl Sauer um, to look at things like energy flows, um, cybernetic feedback loops. So if you, you know, in a relatively small, relatively simple, relatively closed society, um, if people overhunt, you know, um, overuse their resources, then there will be um, natural feedbacks, which influence population growth and, um, or, you know, and so, there were um, a lot of studies looking at um, food production, energy flows, resource use, population. Those are sort of the key f- factors in there. Um, so that's cultural ecology. Now, a lot of people still do that, and a lot of people still will combine a cultural ecology approach with, say, a political ecology focus within certain aspects of their work. The human ecology um, natural hazards approach um, evolved a little bit differently with more of a focus in the U.S., um, a little bit more influence from sociology um, as opposed to, say, anthropology. A lot of this stem within geography stemming from the work of Gilbert White um, in sort of mid-20th century. And Gilbert White, you know, started out in the um, – the second Roosevelt administration, so the FDR administration, um, looking at um, how do people adapt to natural hazards, so things like floods and droughts, um, and this became a um, a an academic field in sort of focused on how do you educate people to make better choices about where they live and how they interact with their natural environment, so as to minimize the risk that people are in. So farmers. Um, exposure to drought and flood or landowners um, exposures to flood. Um, And, you know, then you can just go on from all the the various other hazards, forest fire or um, disease or industrial hazards and things like that. So there was this whole field beginning in the mid 20th century and and on up to the present in um, in hazards. A lot of that today, um, contemporary hazards work has to do with um, climate change, of course. Right. So a lot of people doing that work um, are focused on that. But again, a lot of that has melded with um, political ecology. Now, political ecology sort of got its start to a large extent as a critique of those two fields. So in cultural ecology, there was um, sort of an apolitical nature to it, very much influenced by biological ecology that um, was looking at, um, that was um, focused on um, adaptation, um, very much an adaptationist approach, 
um, these cybernetic feedback loops that um, looked at population as sort of um, a, a, a naturalized in a naturalized way in the sense that it was sort of apolitical and in, in which people didn't have a lot of control over um, over population um, and very much removed from um, political economy. So looking at relatively isolated global South populations, indigenous populations and campesino populations, and asking how do they adapt to their environment and what impacts do they have on their environment, but not asking questions about how did they become marginalized and poor in the first place, and in what ways do they interact with uh, the global uh, capitalist economy, right, within kind of broader uh, fields of political economy. Um, With the hazards approach, um, there was very much this sort of volunteerist approach, again, rather a political, um, just think and very much biased in, ter- in fit, you know, in terms of um, sort of Anglo and Anglophone um, white North American perspectives of rational choice. Right. Um, again, not thinking about why is it that people are subject to hazards, not thinking in terms of the, the political economy of exposure and marginality and vulnerability, not at all considering questions, um, or at least in a very crude sense, considering questions of gender and race and um, ethnicity and sort of um, past histories. It was a very sort of a, his, a lot of it was sort of an ahistorical approach. And so um, political ecology emerged to a large extent as a critique of these two um, approaches that were, in the way that Paul Robbins has characterized them, apolitical ecologies, right? Uh, uh, looking at human society or um, environment society relations, but in a way that's completely divorced from political economy. So political ecologists in the 19, beginning really in the 1970s and then up through the 1980s, began thinking about similar kinds of questions around vulnerability and hazards and resource use, but doing so in a way that incorporated um, a, a political economic approach. So thinking about, you know, histories of colonialism, thinking about broader patterns of capital accumulation and um and integration into global capitalism, thinking about um, what, you know, power relationships and those sorts of things. So the questions um, remain and are still being asked, but they're being asked in a really different sort of conceptual framework and being asked in a different way. Let me build on that a little bit. Um, You talked a lot about uh, in your comments just there about political uh, economy, and obviously that has a lot of strong connections to, to Marxism. And in the introduction you, that you wrote with Gavin Bridge and James McCarthy, you say, quote, the seeds of political ecology and those of Marxist geography took root in the same fertile soil and were watered by the same social and political currents. So what do you mean by this? And what's the role particularly of kind of, of Marxist thought and ideas and political economy more generally in both the development of the field and, um, and maybe where it is today? Yeah. When when we wrote that, one of the goals that we had was to sort of not debunk, but to um, maybe push back against the the typical sort of creation narrative, right? Or the origins, the origin, origin narrative, yeah, right? The origin narrative that you hear a lot, which is sort of what I just told you, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, it's not that that's untrue, but that's only a part of the story of political ecology, right? Um, that you had the cultural ecology tradition and the human 
ecology tradition, the hazards tradition, um, and these were sort of apolitical. Um, and then you had Blakey and Brookfield, and you had Michael Watts writing these critiques of that, and you know, um, hocus pocus, and you've got political ecology emergence, right? Um, and there is some truth to that, right? It's you know, political ecology. The way I learned it was cultural ecology plus political economy equals political ecology, right? So that's part of it. Um, and then, you know, there's also it's influenced by sort of Marxist development theory, particularly among people like um, Piers Blakey and and British academics more than U.S.-based academics, um, in, in part because in Britain, development studies is a much better defined field. Um, and so there were people coming from um, a Marxist perspective who were in development studies who were looking at these kinds of questions as well. But that's, again, that's only part of the story. Part, you know, the other part of it is that the roots actually do go farther back, and I would say to the 60s and particularly to the 1970s, where you had this kind of critical term or sorry, critical turn within human geography more generally. Um, the most famous um, figure in this, of course, in the Anglophone tradition is um, David Harvey, right? Began as a quantitative, um, you know, spatial scientist. And then, um, and that's how he first made his name and then had this kind of radical radicalization. And in the early seventies began publishing, um, works in Marxist geography. And so then you had this whole flourishing beginning in the 1970s of sort of a radical approach to human geography, looking at, um, urbanization, looking at, um, sort of a geographical perspective on capitalism, um, Looking at you know things like um, gentrification and um, and redlining and discrimination, discriminatory housing practices, and all of those things um, that human geographers and um, look at right. So economic and political geography, not so much the environmental questions, but partly what we are arguing is that a lot of those roots are the same. A lot of it comes out of this sort of radicalization of the academy. After the 1960s, where you have in the 1970s this sort of opening towards Marxist um, scholarship and more radical ways of approaching, um, you know, kind of the traditional questions of in geography. And so some of this went the way of um, political and economic geography. So sort of broadly human geography. So, again, thinking of um, David Harvey and the people who worked in that field, um, Bill Bungie and a lot of the other sort of radical geographers in that field. But then you also have this other um, part of that moving towards the environmental questions, right? Sort of asking from, again, from a Marxist perspective, very much informed by this radical turn, um, steeped in, you know, Marxist literature, which was um, sort of emerging at that time, influenced again by, um, you know, people like James Scott and his work on um, on resistance and moral economy of the peasantry in the 1970s and 80s. Um, you know, people were very much influenced by that. But you had people like um, Blakey and Brookfield, um, Harold Brookfield and Piers Blakey, Michael Watts, Susanna Hecht, all turning those questions toward um, sort of agrarian questions, um, peasant studies, environmental questions, resource management, um, cultural ecology, hazards, those kinds of things. So 
in some ways you have these two different currents moving some towards environmental studies, environmental geography, some towards more um, human economic political geography. One of the kind of key figures back, you know, that sort of links those is um, that we, we point out in, I, I believe, in the introduction, either the intro or the conclusion, is um, Neil Smith. Neil Smith was a student of David Harvey's, of course, and in 1984 published um, Uneven Development, which developed a theory of the capitalist production of nature. And so he's sort of a, um, sort of a link between sort of theorizing nature and nature-society relations and human geography. Now, Smith is not cited very much. One of the interesting things about um, in political ecology is that Smith is rarely um, cited. David Harvey cited much more often um, just his kind of basic work on, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of Marxist perspectives on human geography. Um, Neil Smith's work on production of nature is cited much less frequently, um, but it sort of lurks behind a lot of the understandings, right? So that the ideas around production of nature has almost become common sense, right? It's just, it's sort of just accepted by critical geographers um, that, that there's at least some truth to it, even if you don't agree completely with his thesis that um, that nature is produced in this way through capitalist relations of production and exchange. And so um, so there's I think that's where a lot of that comes from. So, yeah, I think a lot of the, the roots for both kind of more Marxist radical human geography and political ecology are in the kind of early 70s, this kind of ferment that comes out of the radical period of the 1960s. Um, I want us to definitely have some time to talk about the the nitty gritty of the the book, even though there's there's, there's so yeah. many different contributors and things such as that. So hopefully people will appreciate learning about political ecology and then dive into this um, uh, wonderful book to learn more about it. But one of the things we haven't really done yet, we've talked kind of about the history of political ecology and some of the theoretical currents that have informed it, but we haven't really tried to define it. Um, and as you discuss in the book, political ecology is really notoriously difficult um, kind of field or subfield to define. And you discuss some of the definitions that have been offered by various scholars. Instead of really offering your own kind of succinct definition, what you and your co-editors do is say that political ecology is best understood as a set of commitments held in common. So maybe mm-hmm. you could tell us about what some of those commitments are that could be shared among political ecologists despite the, the diversity of people doing it. Yeah. Let me see if I can remember all of them. Um, <laughs> I, I was winging. Um, I, um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, I think what we're saying is there's, um, there's a theoretical commitment um, okay. to, yes. um, to kind of radical scholarship, right? Post, I would say, um, post-positivist scholarship, right? Can you explain so, what you mean by that? Yeah. So, so rather than having sort of a, a strictly empiricist, measurable, quantifiable um, um, perspective, right, that you would still have in a lot of sort of resource management. I mean, the, the question being essentially, if you go out and you gather enough data and you run it through the right statistical analyses, you can come up with the, the correct answer. A post-positivist approach doesn't, doesn't eschew um, quantitative analysis or 
um, or positivism, but what it does do is it also, also argues for a more critical theoretical perspective, right? So that there's, um, so that Marxist, I would say a Marxist focus, focus, um, Marxist or, or, um, Marxian, so if not directly from Marx, um, neo, so um, perhaps a neo-Marxian perspective, um, lies behind this. So attention to um, political economy, to relations of production, relations of exchange, um, the and the workings of capitalism, um, right, as the overwhelmingly dominant form of, of um, economic relations, right, in the world today. So a lot of this has to do with sort of a critical theoretical um, grounding in in that, but also um, we make the point that it's not only Marxism that with the you know um, the evolution of political ecology over the last thirty years or so that feminist perspectives, attention to gender, attention to the sort of social construction of gendered relations, um, the the idea that that um, communities and households and gendered relations are infused with. Um, uneven relations of power are marked by uneven relations of power. And so need attention needs to be paid to these, the ways these, the workings of those kinds of relationships. I would also say um, a a post-colonial perspective. So attention to um, kind of historical relations of colonialism and, and imperialism and the way that that has shaped um, the world. And not only in sort of the, the formerly colonized world of the global South, but also in sort of the settler colonies of the U S and Canada and Australia that are also um, very much marked by post-colonial relations. So I would say those kinds of critical theoretical perspectives are also really, um, mark, um, political ecology. It's hard to imagine something called political ecology without attention to um, critical theory, right? Mm-hmm. So it may, it's not necessarily that all political ecologists have this, exactly the same read on, on social theory or use the same sort of theoretical tools, but it's hard to imagine political ecology without some use of critical social theory. So that's one. One is a, um, is a, a normative um, commitment. So normative commitment to social justice, right? To, um, to a radical social change um, that, you know, so not just studying the, the world as it is, but as Marx wrote in the thesis to Feuerbach, um, the, uh, the goal is not just to merely to understand the world, but the goal is to change it, right? So the, this normative commitment to social justice, um, sort of broadly understood and, and, um, a lot of that having to do with environmental justice and, um, questions around, um, environmental, um, ethics and environmental quality. Um, and, um, so, so that's another, another one that this isn't, it's a, it's a political ecology in the sense that it's an attention to ecological relations that's political at, in its very nature. Right. And then the other the other commitment is a methodological commitment. And um, here I know that there are some branches of the field um, in the Spanish tradition that don't necessarily agree with me. And I've got myself in a little bit of trouble with this, but I'm going to stick to it, which is that um, I would say there's also a methodological commitment, particularly for sure in the Anglophone tradition of um, of an in-depth qualitative uh, approach to research, right? That there are um, questions around the relations between nature and society and the, the relations of 
power that infuse socio-natural relations um, that can't be understood um, only through sort of uh, satellite imagery and um, quantitative analysis, right? That it takes some sort of grounded qualitative approach that might be ethnographic, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, but you know, much of that is historical, right? So there are people who do historical political ecology, but, um, digging, but, but that requires getting into the, um, into the archives, into, um, documents that try to get at the, um, the kind of social relations and the meanings behind, um, those kinds of environment society relations. Um, so part of that has to do not just with the outcomes, but also the meanings that are produced and the, and the social relations and how those are formed in relation to um, society and environment, okay. resource management, okay. things like that. That was really helpful because when I was reading it, uh, reading the book uh, and all of these wonderful chapters, I was really taken by really the diversity of of people in it, and also people that I'd never really thought of necessarily as political ecologists. But your conclusion is very helpful when you talk about these commitments about, despite these differences, what some of the things that might hold them together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've talked about political ecology, where it's come from, maybe what are some of the commitments of its practitioners. And in your book, you with your co-editors, you split it up into a number of parts, such as uh, a part on doing political ecology, kind of political ecology um, in practice, uh, issues around uh, environmental politics and social movements, um, how people form what you called um, environmental identities. And a major portion of this is environmental governance, which I know is a topic that you've looked a lot at. And certainly many of the students in our program here at Syracuse have looked um, at issues around environmental governance. And a major topic of that, uh, it seems to me, is focusing on uh, recent issues around neoliberalization. Uh, so maybe you could tell the listeners about how uh, political ecologists have focused on this uh, political and economic movement around neoliberalism in their research. Yeah, sure. So just really briefly, environmental governance um, for people who might not be familiar with uh, the term, uh, the, the notion of governance is a really broad concept and is used in lots of different ways by in different fields, right? So it's certainly um, the, the notion of governance and then the notion of environmental governance is not unique to geography, let alone political ecology. But the way that it's used by political ecologists is really to look at sort of the institutionalization of resource use, environmental um, practices, right? So things like um, formal institutions, government agencies, um, nonprofit organizations, those kinds of things, but also the institutions, social institutions, things like regularized norms, um, regularized practices, norms, values, um, and how, um, how different organizations of people operate through different um, sort of institutional configurations to manage, um, to, um, to, to, um, to use um, natural resources, environments and natural resources, right? So it's really has a lot to do with sort of the ways in which resource use um, is institutionalized in different configurations, right? And the poly, but very, again, through this kind of view of, of political economy, right? So, 
a lot of that work, I would say not all of it, but but the large majority of that work in political ecology um, has been focused on neoliberalism, right? So neoliberalism as sort of the the latest phase of capitalism. Um, so very much this kind of market-led economic model, um, which if you think about sort of free market economics, one of the things that you know, advocates of free market economics are constantly trying to do is essentially reinstitutionalize and to a large extent rescale um, the way that capitalism works, right? So things like decentralization, privatization, um, uh, market-based incentives for environmental management, um, payment for ecosystem services, um, uh, wetlands markets, um, various other kinds of um, innovations, market-led innovations in environmental management are all essentially neoliberalization of environmental management, which have to do with sort of reinstitutionalizing from state control to private or um, public-private partnerships and rescaling from, say, centralized down to sort of localized or or centralized federal government to globalized um you know, kind of global markets, um, these kind of rescaling of environmental management. So, um, so a lot of the work um, that is has been done in political ecology in recent years is focused on neoliberal environmental governance, the ways in which um, the the governance of environment and socio natural relations um, have been reconfigured, reinstitutionalized, and rescaled. Um, under neoliberalism. I, you know, I'm in addition to editing this book, I'm also an editor of the journal Geoforum and a huge percentage of the articles that I get sent. So I kind of do a lot of the ones on political ecology um, and a huge percentage, probably a fifth of the, of the articles that I handle have to do with payment for ecosystem services in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an enormous body of literature, almost too much, I think, <laughs> on, <laughs> those, on those kinds of, on those kinds of topics. So um, it's a, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot, and there's a lot going on. I mean, it doesn't take long before you start, you stumble across, you know, if you're reading the newspaper or looking at environmental blogs or, you know, the pages of the wall street journal, um, it doesn't take long before you stumble across um, some kind of, you know, uh, sure. neoliberalization of environmental management, environmental governance. Uh, that's really helpful. One of the other topics that, I mean, it connects to the neoliberalism issue in environmental governance is issues around environmental politics. Uh, and there's a section, uh, the section on environmental politics also has a chapter about social movements. And I know that's something that's been very important in your research in uh, South America. But there are other scholars in sociology and political science who study social movements, maybe even social movements related to environmental questions. So could you tell me, is there a unique or particular spin on the way political ecologists look at social movements? No, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a totally unique way. I mean, I think, you know, it's sort of incorporating the work of so or you know a focus on social movements and social movement politics in with those I mean if you think about it um, sort of what defines political ecology in addition to the sorts of questions and phenomena and processes that we look at 
um, are those commitments, a normative commitment, um, a theoretical commitment, and a methodological commitment. Um, if you think about the work on social movements, um, a lot of people start, you know, one of the reasons that people look at social movements is because oftentimes we agree with their politics. And a lot of times people who do work with, you know, political ecologists who work on social movement, you know, study social movements, oftentimes begin as activists and maybe they continue their activist work with the social movement doing kind of solidarity work and then end up studying them from an economic or sorry, from a, from an academic perspective. So I would say those same questions are, you know, and approaches pertain um, in terms of, you know, the, the methodological questions around um, sort of getting, you know, spending time with people in the social movement. Oftentimes that's done through an ethnographic approach, spending lots of time in the field at organizing meetings, at events, at, um, you know, um, maybe occupations or whatever that the social movement is focused on. Um, and again, with sort of a, an attention to political economy, I think one of the things that I would have to say is if there's a weakness in this approach is um, precisely for the reasons that I just said, um, there's probably too much proportionally too much attention paid to relatively progressive social movements of the left and, and not enough attention paid to um, sort of right-wing social movements. Now, that's not entirely – I mean, it's, there, there are good examples. So one of my co-editors is James McCarthy, and he did his dissertation work on um, the, the – um, uh, oh, the wise use. Thank you, Bob. I knew you would know. <laughs> the wise use movement in the West totally escaped my mind. The wise use movement, which is sort of a, a right wing um, resource use movement, um, very locally based uh, among farmers and ranchers and other um, land users and rural populations in the in the rural American West um, that sort of bubbled up in the 1980s. There have been lots of different examples of this, including some kind of more recently. Um, so he did his work on that. There's um, There are some other examples of people studying sort of right-wing social movements. I think there actually needs to be more attention to that um, for various reasons. But um, but anyway that's but that's the kind of focus and my own work in social movements um has been looking at most recently um environmental justice advocates in the um bolivian altiplano and people who are um sort of trying to get um coping with mine related water contamination and trying to get mining companies and the bolivian state to um to uh implement environmental remediation um, efforts, which is is hard to do in that area. So, um, but I've also looked at indigenous movements, at um, irrigators, um, campesino irrigators um, organizations and their mobilizations in um, in Bolivia, indigenous organizations in Ecuador. Um, so a lot of my work is also focused on um, kind of rural people's um, social movements and the way that they've organized around questions of resource access and use. At the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that there were different approaches and perspectives to political ecology um, outside the Anglophone tradition. And this book, as massive as it is, with so many different contributors and topics, is mostly by people working in that Anglophone tradition. And so 
briefly, could you talk a little bit about these different perspectives uh, in other countries and, and other sort of language traditions of political ecology? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that was, I would say, um, one of the weaknesses of this book is that it doesn't in- incorporate as much of um, non-Anglophone voices as we would have liked. We have um, a couple chapters. We had hoped to get at least a couple more, um, and that that didn't happen. Um, but it's, uh, um, but yeah, there's. Um, so it is mostly Anglophone tradition. Although we do a pretty good job with non-Anglophone Europeans. Um, there are, and there are a couple Latin Americans who are coming from more from the Spanish tradition. But so basically, I, I think there are, there are these different traditions in political ecology as there are in geography more generally. Um, and the Anglophone tradition is one of them, arguably the dominant tradition in political ecology and in um, kind of critical human geography more generally. Um, and, and I say Anglophone because it's not just U.S. base. It's not just North American, but um, partly because of the relative weakness of geography in the U.S. and the relative strength of geography in um, the U.K. and um, the Commonwealth. It's a tradition that is based very much in the U.K., Ireland, um, the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, so it's an Anglophone tradition. I'm sure I'm forgetting some places too. Um, but there are other traditions as well. So one is the Francophone tradition, which has its own um, roots in um, in political ecology um, or its own tradition in political ecology. Um, a lot of these roots, and we do have a chapter by um, Denis Gautier and Christian Cull looking at um, the, um, the French tradition of agrarian studies in Africa. So this makes sense historically, right? I mean, um, France was one of the major colonial powers in West Africa, and um, a lot of the work coming out of um, – France and in the Francophone tradition has to do with um, African agrarian studies. So looking at um, rural land use and um, agricultural production in um, a lot in West Africa, not exclusively West Africa, but in a lot of that. Um, there's, um, there's a strong tradition in the Scandinavian countries as well. Um, some of that fo- less, I think, regionally focused, so it's not exclusive to Africa. A lot of that is done in Africa, a lot of it in Latin America, a lot of it in Europe itself. Um, there's a, um, there's a, a German language tradition as well. Um, and, um, which is, has its own roots in, um, in human geography and a Spanish language tradition. And in the Spanish language of those non-Anglophone traditions, that's the one that I know the best because of working in, in Latin America. Um, and much of this is rooted in, um, has alliances, interestingly enough, with the Francophone tradition, in part because a lot of sort of the the thinkers, well, there's some real similarities in terms of the French Academy and the Spanish Academy in terms of um, of literatures, in terms of questions, in terms of style, um, and in terms of affinity. So a lot of um, a lot of the Spanish language um, academics, the best known Spanish language academics, like Enrique Leff, who has a chapter in the handbook, was actually educated in Paris, and um, and so he, there's a a lot of Spanish language scholars look more to the Francophone um, kind of 
philosophers and theoretical traditions um, more so than the Anglophone traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's various reasons for that, but that, but I think that that's um, by and large that's the case. Um, not exclusively, um, and there are a lot of um, Latin American scholars who were educated in the U.S., but there are also a lot who are educated in France and elsewhere in Europe. So there's partly there's that tradition, and I think partly it's wanting to establish their own sort of um, tradition, which is a separate from and not just subsumed under the, the Anglophone tradition. So activity in Latin America around political ecology and in Europe as well. And one of the leading centers of political ecology, um, I would say right up there with Berkeley, is actually Barcelona. Um, so the Autonomous University in Barcelona, that where um, um, scholars like Giorgio Calis and um, Juan Martinez Alier and some others um, are located, is one of these centers for political ecology work in Europe. Uh, and there's, so there's some really interesting work that's being done there. A lot of that focused on Latin America. So there's a strong solidarity then between um, Spanish scholars, and in that case, some of them are Catalan, and some are very international. So there are Greek scholars, like Giorgio Calis is Greek, but at Barcelona. Um, so there, um, there's a strong engagement then between Barcelona and other Spanish scholars um, and scholars in Latin America around these kinds of questions. Um, yeah, and then I think there's a real explicit attempt to sort of establish a tradition which is not just limited to the Anglophone tradition. And then there's other ways of thinking about political ecology altogether. I mean, so one other use of the term political ecology has to do with sort of European Green Party. So, for instance, the French academic and, politi- and pol- politician Alain Lepietz, um has called himself a political ecologist, but this is really more sort of in the tradition of the European Greens, the yes. Green Party. So there's a, a slightly different um, tradition there. One of the interesting things about this, I think, is that the kind of political ecology as an academic field has evolved in different ways and at different times within those different areas, right? So in Europe, political ecology is more recent in terms of you know the ways that people have self-consciously thought of their work as being political ecological or political ecology. Um, And it's more recent and it's also because I think they're working within a more conservative academy in much of Europe overall. Um, It's much more seen as sort of cutting edge and new and edgy and really something that um, is going against the, is sort of counter current, right? In the United States, it's almost taken for granted. I mean, as you kind of mentioned, political ecology, the specialty group within the AAG is, it's either the the largest or second largest, I think, if I'm not mistaken, specialty group within the the AAG. And it's growing really fast, and it's growing in all kinds of inchoate directions, right? So it's doing all kinds of different things. So what's happened... Recently, is that a lot of people who sort of came up within political ecology, made their name in the field, now are sort of distancing themselves from that. And um, I think in part because of this sort of 
need within the academy to always be new and different and cutting edge. There are people who are actually sort of saying, I'm not a political ecologist, I need something different, right? So it's almost, I mean, um, in some circles, political ecology is almost passe. Um, it's sort of interesting. I've seen, I've kind of seen this in my own career, right? So I've been in, in academics, well, since I started graduate school, it's been almost, it's been about 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. So within that 20 period, um, I've gone from what I'm doing as sort of, you know, I wouldn't say it was ever like cutting edge, but something really new where I had to sort of justify what I'm doing. And I actually had people early on in some of my early reviews um, of, of articles, you know, people who told me, you know, well, what you're doing really isn't political ecology because it's not ecological enough. There's too much focus on culture or, you know, these kind of indigenous movements, but it's not it's not political ecology. Um, and, and so, you know, I was sort of a little bit too out there 20 years ago for some people. And, um, and in my most recent graduate seminars in political ecology, I've actually had graduate students kind of refer to the kind of work that I do, sort of rural third world, you know, global south work on um, you know, kind of peasant producers, smallholders, um, as sort of old style, old school political. So in, in, in the span of my career, and I'm, you know, I'm about like mid-career, I'm not that old, I'm from cutting edge to, to old school within the span of just my career. And I don't think what I've done has actually changed all that much. So it's the, the field is, is definitely a moving target. It's changed a lot. Well, Grandpa, uh, uh, Professor Perot, uh, <laughs> we're going to have to to end it there. There's a lot more to talk about, but I encourage listeners to uh, to get the book and uh, on the website for new books in geography, the the web page for this uh, interview and book. You can click on the link and uh, go to the site for the book and look at the table of contents and see. The, the many different topics in this that we have just barely touched on. So I encourage you to look at it. It's a very rich, sophisticated, and provocative book. I know I'm going to be consulting it for years to come. So, Tom, thanks very much for taking some time out of your day to join us on New Books in Geography. You're welcome. Thanks, Bob. <laughs>